welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Continuing our Foundations for Optimal Living theme for this month on the ABCA podcast is CEO and founder of AIM7, Dr. Eric Corm. Eric played football at Texas A&M. He covered a lot of ground in the football world after graduating. He's traveled all over the world studying elite performance. He was in the NFL for 15 years as sports scientist and high performance director. He was at William & Mary for two years as associate athletics director for student athlete performance. And he also participated in the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program. Eric and I got connected to talk about sleep habits. In our pre-episode talk, we found some common passions in habit building and neuroplasticity. Don't let that scare you from this episode. We cover a ton of territory here on habit forming, self-improvement, and why sleep is important. Let's welcome Dr. Eric Korm to the podcast. Here with Dr. Eric Korm, uh, CEO and founder of AIM7, uh, worked at William & Mary's Associate Athletics Director for Student Athlete High Performance, uh, also Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, and 15 years as sports scientist and high performance director for the NFL also the Blueprint Podcast and Twitter at Eric Corum. Did I get all of it? Yeah, thank you very much. On Instagram too. Uh, but yeah, a lot, lot of interesting twists and turns to my career. <laughs> and shout out to Joe, Dr. Joe Eisenman. He got us connected. Yes. Um, Dr. Joe's done a lot for us. He's on our youth uh, committee and travel mm -hmm. committee. And I, this is kind of a health and wellness month for us with uh, strength and conditioning, nutrition, uh, mental health. And so I, I did want to reach out to you about sleep, and we can get into that. But you're mm -hmm. you're so diverse that we're going to cover a bunch of other things as well. But for somebody that doesn't know you, kind of dive into your journey and, and how you got to where you're at. Yeah, because this is baseball, I will let you know that my first love was baseball. It was the first sport I played for a very long time, and I love the sport. Uh, I was a pitcher, and um, yeah, I love the sport, but I ended up playing uh, as a walk-on football player at Texas A&M. And uh, my life really changed because uh, attached to the weight room was a physiology lab. And they were really way ahead of the curve when I was in college in the late 90s, early 2000s. 
and I was pre-med biomedical science. And I went to my head strength coach, Mike Clark. And I was like, Hey, what is going on over here? Like these people have got these masks on and like, what is going on? He's like, there's a real science to training and developing athletes. So I switched to applied exercise physiology. When I graduated, I went to the university of Arkansas and, um, I got a degree, master's degree in physiology, but while I was there, I got to work with some of the best sprinters in the history of uh, sprinting. And so I was connected with Veronica Campbell Brown. She just came off the Olympics and a host of other athletes. And I got to travel the world with Veronica for a number of years. And we're very close today. She's one, she's one, she's an eight time Olympic medalist, three time Olympic gold medalist, and one of two women to ever win the gold twice in the 200 meters. So I was traveling around the world with them and I'm like looking at these other countries and I'm like, okay, what's going on here? They train and develop their athletes differently. And here's why it just kind of hit me. Our problem in the United States is we have too many good athletes. It's like, if you're in the middle East and you got all this water or this like uh, oil under your feet, are you looking for other sources of energy? No, you're just going to drill into the ground. Well, here you go to certain parts of the United States and just athletes everywhere. So we, for a long time, we didn't really think about what do we need to do to optimize their performance. And so countries like Australia in the late seventies were embarrassed. They go to the Olympic games and like three medals. And so they started investing in these institutes of sport. And, um, and then lo and behold, by the 2000 Olympics, they were in the top three in medal count. Same thing happened to great Britain in the recent Olympics that they hosted, they invested a ton of money, brought the best coaches, high performance, and all of a sudden they're in top three, this little island. So I was like, okay, that's my goal now. I want to bring this high performance concept to the U.S. So um, I skipped around. I was at the University of Pacific, worked with baseball there, um, and uh, went to Mississippi State, ended up at Florida State University in 2010 under Jimbo Fisher. And this is when things really changed. Uh, I was hired as the speed coach because my background on the track. And uh, he quickly promoted me to director of football operations and sports science, which is a role that didn't exist. I had no business being in football ops, you know, I'm like, you know, running this organization anyways, but it allowed me to go to Australia. Hey, let me say, how did you handle that? We all go through it. We all get thrown into positions that maybe Mm. we're not ready for. How did you deal with that? Great question. You know, I told coach, I'll do whatever you need me to do. I was doing a lot of organizational stuff. Uh, It just kind of led up to this moment, but I was like, coach, if you, let me be this director of sports science too. I'll be happy to do it. He's like, call yourself whatever you want. But you know, it's funny. I just sat back and I was like, okay, now I'm in this, I'm like the COO essentially. What is it that drove me nuts in previous places that I could improve? And so I got all the key stakeholders together one-on-one and I say, Hey, listen, what is it about your job that you need to make you more successful? And so I just started sequentially going through and be like, all right, equipment guy needs this, 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 and this. And I went like, Hey, this is what we need. Here's the plan of action. And things started picking up pace. And um, actually one of the coaches I worked with told me he thought I was going to fail. And, uh, and that didn't happen. And that's kind of one of the reasons he and I developed a really strong relationship, but yeah. Do do you learn more from what not to do? I mean, I always learned more from what not to do in the situations Mm -hmm. that I was in to then maybe help me in the next situation because you're figuring out what's not working 
and maybe how, ways to do it better? Were you picking things up along the way that way too? Yeah, absolutely. I just actually sat down in my office and made a list of all the things that I saw that were flawed, not just there, but in the past. I also wanted people to be treated a certain way. And then I made tons of mistakes and thankful that the head coach gave me some grace. Like I'd never run football camps and this is one of the biggest football camps in America. And it was just like, the stress was really high and I had to learn how to manage that. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. I asked a lot of questions. I tried to form, get it my own team together and be like, listen, I can't do this by myself. I'm going to need all of y'all to help me. And I had this executive assistant who had been there forever. And she was like, she's like, Eric, I'm going to help you out. And so she just like opened the book. She's like, this is how this is done. This is, how. I'm like, all right, cool. You want to handle the travel manifest? Go for it. You know, I was like, I didn't try to take on things that I didn't think I could do well. And I just let people teach me, but I try to provide guidance and direction at the same time. Does that make sense? That's a huge pro tip, by the way, on the college setting, because there's going to be someone that has invested their entire career at that place mm -hmm. and they know where all the bodies are buried. So you need to find yes. that person because they can give you a ton of inexpensive experience along the way because they know everybody on campus. They know who you need to go to to get this and, and they can help. They can shorten that gap for you. I actually still call her every once in a while and just, we just shoot the bull and just talk about whatever. And yeah, she, if, if she wasn't there, I, I probably would have failed. And yeah, so, I, so after that, you know, where, where's the next step for you after that? Yeah. So I got to go to Australia for a month and a brand new startup Australian football team called the greater Western Sydney giants said, hey, we want to, it was an information exchange. They wanted to help us with a specific project. And I was like, in return, it was just me and my wife. We're going to go for a month. Y'all pay for it. This was during my vacation. And I want to learn everything about sports science and high performance. So I saw athlete tracking technology being used for the very first time. And so there was a host of other things I learned, but I came back to Coach Fisher. I said, Coach, we had a lot of talent and they were recruiting like gangbusters. And I was like, I felt that we were wearing our players out, but I couldn't, nobody quantified the game before. And so this company catapult, which did not exist in the United States at the time, I got 12 units. And I said, I want to quantify the game of football in game, in practice. I want to put heart rate monitors on them. We're going to use GPS. He's like, okay, you're going to love this story though. I hired a former NASA propulsion engineer to help us decipher the data because it was just raw telemetry data. So this guy's name was Rocket Man, and he literally worked in a closet. <laughs> but the first practice, we get off the field. I come to coach. I bring in this stack of papers, and I'm like, all right, coach, here you go, you know, with all this data. And he's like, so was practice hard? I was like, I think so. And he, like, cussed me out and sent me back to my office. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, what did I go wrong? And I basically realized I'd given him a bunch of data he couldn't use. That's when I realized like data without insight is useless. Yeah. You have to use it to tell a story. You know, we're, we're battling yes. it in the baseball world right now and there's so much data being collected, but you have to tell a story with it. Like there's so much good information out there, mm. but if you can't tell a story with the data, then it's going to get lost on, on the general person that's, that's dealing with the information. 100%. And if the key st stakeholders can't make decisions with it, you might as well not use it. And so fortunately, he didn't fire me. And uh, we tracked that entire 2011 season. 
and um it was unfortunate our first year we went from six wins to ten wins we'd just taken over for bobby bowden right that's like a big task and then the next year we had a dip and we had very talented players and at the end of the year we did a report we basically realized a couple things one we were practicing our guys into the ground like we were playing three to four games before we got to saturday and number two we were able to show like all the position differentials on the field and like like let's put it in baseball terms like you should like there are certain common movement patterns that all players need but why would you train the pitcher like the outfielder the center fielder needs to be fast and be able to run and pivot and the pitcher needs some different stuff and so i was like coach look at all these different demands let's train them for their he's like okay we unified the organization on some different areas. The next year we had an 88% reduction in injury and we went on to win the conference championship and orange bowl. We were very talented. We just, and we had great coaches. We just needed to kind of clean up some stuff. And so my career just changed. Like the NFL flew in. They're like, what are you doing with this? They adopted that type of technology and like things like next gen stats have bubbled out of it. Now catapults everywhere. Um, and so I went on to be the high performance director at the University of Kentucky. Mark Stoops, our defensive coordinator, went there and was like, hey, I want to bring you with me. While I was there, though, I started seeing I was like, you know, I was the first sports scientist. Now I'm the first high performance director. But I'm like around the world, usually you have like a Ph.D. or something. So I asked Coach Stoops if I could pursue my doctoral degree while I was there during lunch and at night. He was like, OK, so this is what brings us to the conversation today. I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, what are some things that you can't live without? Water, food, sleep. So I'm like, I want to learn about sleep. I want to learn about how sleep, I got really interested in like how we adapt to stress, physical or mental. And what's the relationship between sleep and our ability to adapt to stress? And so we met, we did a really cool study with um, SEC football players and um, during their season, okay, it's a very stressful period of time. And what we were able to do is you can measure biological stress a couple ways. One, looking at something called heart rate variability. A lot of people use it now to put a strap on your chest or it comes off your Apple watch, but that's a very fluctuating metric and you got to know when to get it. So it's not tainted. And then there's something called direct current potential of the brain. And it's a brain biorhythm. It's one of the, it's a slow cortical potential. It's a very stable thing. And the only way to change is you have to have a lot of stress or something very strong stimulus. So, I, And what it represents is, is the brain's ability to coordinate all these subsystems. So your cardiovascular system, your nervous system, and it's a, it's scientifically valid and reliable metric for like how you're adapting to stress. What we found was, is that sleeping uh, between seven and a half and nine hours of sleep. So back to back nights, I didn't want to just look at one night of sleep, like what led to this optimal range, seven and a half to nine hours, put athletes in an optimal state to adapt to stress. Below that was suboptimal, above nine hours was suboptimal. So it was like this bell curve. And that's really like, that was a big finding because we were able to show in with athletes really going at it hard that they needed this sleep to be able to adapt physically and mentally. 
Well, yeah, because not enough's not good, and then too much isn't good either. Because I think mm-hmm. as a human, you feel it. Like if, if you don't get enough sleep, you're going to feel it. But if you sleep too long, you're going to feel it also. And also from a health perspective, research shows that if you don't sleep enough, there's very bad health consequences. And if you sleep too much, people that usually sleep too much are, you know, think about bedridden, maybe they don't exercise very much. And so there's all cause mortality goes up. So as a coach, if you're listening to this, before you start thinking about how to impact your player's sleep, you need to think about your own sleep because you are the key decision maker on the field. You guys are strategists. You have to look around corners. You have to be gaming with folks. If you're not sharp, you're putting your team at a disadvantage. And so it's kind of like flying in a plane. You put the oxygen mask on yourself first before your child. If you're not thinking about how you're taking care of yourself and only the players, you're really putting your team at a strategic disadvantage. And I do want to get into some sleep recommendations here. And then we talked about neuroplasticity yesterday, so I want to get in that rabbit yeah. hole at some point. But I do want to cover the sleep part first. Can you just go over just some recommendations like sleep hygiene, maybe somebody that, that really hasn't dove into that piece of it, some, some tips to, to help get a better night's sleep? Yeah, let me tell you one thing real quick. Like, why do we sleep? Okay, because I think it's like important to understand that. The first thing is restoration. When you sleep, there's a certain part of sleep where growth hormone is released. It actually restores your tissues. So you're repairing your body. Number two, detoxification of your brain. Your brain literally has this sewage system. It's called the glymphatic system. And when you sleep at night, it literally flushes out these metabolic waste products, some of which are associated with things like Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Okay. And then the third thing is, is what you just mentioned is neuroplasticity or the brain's ability to modify itself to the environment. So your ability to learn new skills, to learn anything really. And so that is why we sleep in regards to sleep duration recommendations, seven and a half to nine hours of sleep. Now here's something that most people do is they lay down in bed and they look at their phone like, okay, it's, um, you know, 1030. I'm gonna wake up at six at seven and a half hours of sleep. Good. Well, it takes anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes for some people to fall asleep. And so we overestimate how much we sleep. Let's just say by 20 to 30 minutes a night. And so you need to be in bed. So if you want to get seven and a half hours, you need to be in bed for eight. And that's what I tell our athletes I work with is like plan for that transition to sleep in regards to what you called sleep hygiene. It's like the environment or the period of time around you sleep. And so, cause that's the routine piece, right? Like I, yeah, I have a set bed routine. Um, you know, people have a set, set wake routine. I have a set bed routine. So Mm -hmm. I do try to go to bed at the same time, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Michael Gervais and Dr. Michael Bruce had a really good podcast on just all things sleep. It was uh, December 11th, 1999 or 2019 and had some really good just pointers. And so, you know, my routine is, you know, obviously wash my face, brush my teeth. Um, sometimes I'll take melatonin, sometimes I don't. Mm. But once I'm in, I'm in. My phone's away. Um, you know, talk about blue light and some of the things not having your phone by you. I 
really don't have a hard time getting to, to bed now because of the routine that I have, but I'm also not coaching either. You know, I yeah. think that has a little bit to do with it as well as I'm not coaching anymore. And I think when you're coaching, you have a lot more going on. Um, you know, my day's set now. I have some things that are different here and there, but my routine throughout the day is pretty much set now. So I think that has more to do with it now while I'm sleeping better is I'm not coaching as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. So let's unpack that for a second. The first thing is, is you need to have a routine for how you wind down. Like I'm an entrepreneur now. And so the stress is even, it's greater than it's ever been. Like bigger than when I was in the NFL playoffs or, you know, I would say a gold medal race when Veronica was sprinting, like that's close, but it's all the time now. Um, And so there are ways that you can combat this stress, but you need to have a wind down period where you're like, okay, you mentioned blue light, but I, we can talk about this here in a second. Cause this really impacts sleep. I'm just going to go ahead and mention it. Is that like the way that your, your body orients itself. And there's these, these hormones that are released. When you wake up in the morning, there's this hormone called cortisol. That's really high. It's not bad. It's actually what wakes you up. As the day goes on, it's supposed to tail off. And then it's a hormone called melatonin is supposed to rise. It's a sleepy hormone. But the way all of that is set up is your exposure to light. Yep, circadian rhythms. So, yeah, so Andrew Huberman at the Huberman Lab has really done some great work on this. But um, your eyes are literally your brain on the outside of your body. The optic nerve is so big. That, I mean, you're literally, it's your eyes. So what happens is if you see the sunlight early in the day, specifically, specifically when it's low on the horizon, it coordinates all the circadian clocks in your body. It wakes up your nervous system and it sets you up for this transition. So if you're a coach, a lot of coaches wake up in the morning early, see the sunrise for two to 10 minutes in the morning, literally go, I don't care if it's negative 20, get outside and look at the sun. And I do this every morning on a walk. I do too. That also, I'm outside every morning. Really? Yes. I, I do my dynamic warm up. So I meditate. Once I get done meditating, I have my workout clothes on. That's part of my, my evening routine is to lay my mm-hmm. workout clothes out. So they're set by the, the sink. Um, but then as soon as I get done meditating, I go outside and do a dynamic warm up and then figure out what I'm going to do workout wise. But hey, the other thing is no TV in my room. Like my wife and I, they, we don't have a television in our room. So I think that yeah. helps. Our, our bedroom area is obviously for bedroom activities, sleep, you know, whatever. Like it, it's a specific space. Yes. Like I think that helps us too. Like that's our area where, where we sleep. Don't do work in your bed. Yeah. So let me go back to this sleep, this sunlight thing though, because it's yeah. helped so many people. So the second thing though is, is you've heard of dopamine, Dopamine is a hormone that people think about with like reward, but dopamine is what allows you to consistently pursue difficult goals. So when you view the sunlight early in the day, it fills up these dopamine tanks in your brain. Okay. I don't want to get into all the neurochemical stuff, but just to let you know, it's so critical. Then the opposite in the evening, watch the sun set if you can. But avoid any light past 11 p.m. The blue light thing, it's actually kind of a myth. 
Love it. And um, that's why I bring it up. That's why I have yeah. smarter people than me on here because you can you can debunk bunk some of these myths that are out there. You don't need to wear blue light blocking glasses. Um, Huberman actually, Huberman is a, a professor of neuroscience and ophthalmology at Stanford University. And the people that started looking at this blue light stuff didn't really read the papers to completion. So you can go there and look him up for some more detail on this. But just the key thing is, is just any light, like just past 11 p.m., it's got to go. Um, especially in your house, overhead lights, like your body has a hard time differentiating the sun from an overhead light. It's just weird. So as- Hey, let, morning, let me ask you though, okay. Yeah. You know, we got pro coaches, pro players that listen in. Say say you got a 7 p.m. game, but we run extra innings. And so say we're, we're up past 11 p.m. with some light. What are some oh, yeah. ways that, to help tackle that? Um, you know, again- does it really matter when you go to bed or is it, does it matter more the amount of sleep you're getting when you, you know, staying regular with kind of that time you go to bed and wake up, you know, are those good tips? Man, that's a very interesting scenario. Exposing yourself to bright light is a way to alert the nervous system. And so if you need to play a game at night, like do that, you know what I'm saying? Um, but in order, you just gonna have to realize in order to get things back to normal, the later you stay up and you're exposing yourself to light, you're draining that dopamine, those dopamine centers. So what I would say is, is look, you got to earn money and play a game, right? Have a wind down routine. Just like you said, maybe, okay, I get done with the game. I take a hot shower I turn off, you know, I'm not going to look at social media. Maybe I, some people need a journal. I knew a special operator who was in a very intense unit. He would drink uh, herbal tea. What is it? Chamomile tea at night. And he would do a little bit of journaling to just start to unwind the brain. Cause you brain dump on your head. Good way to yes. brain dump is journal. Yeah. Brain dump it. Calm a cold, a hot shower actually helps a lot. Um, make sure that your room, the hygiene piece, right? It's cold, dark, and quiet. So sleep like a caveman. That's what I tell people. You want your room between 60 to 68 degrees. Um, that helps with melatonin. Some people, if you have the money, look at something like an Uller. An Uller is a cooling mat that would go on your bed. And so you get in and it kind of drops your body temperature, help usher you into sleep faster dark zero light zero light a friend a friend of mine he's a he's the president of the golf channel and he said he would travel so much he would travel with uh trash bags and tape and he would tape over the windows in the hotel you know if you have to roll up a towel under the door you want zero light turn your cell phone over if an alarm clock's in pull it out and then the last thing is you need consistent or no noise so if you're in a busy city travel with like a white noise maker like for your little kid, like I have one in my bedroom, I turn it on every night, just keeps consistent noise. So everything's just cold, dark and quiet. Then if you had these late night games, when you wake up in the morning, go outside and expose your eyes to don't go stare at the sun, but look at the, you know, expanse. Looking at the sun or, or light through a window is 50 times less effective. So you literally need to go outside and get your circadian rhythm back on track. And um, yeah, that is what that is what I would do. 
if I was having to play a late night game. If you're not though, like 11 o'clock, the lights need to be out and you need to start preparing and winding down at least an hour to an hour and a half before to kind of transition from the state of high alertness to a state of calmness. Scrolling through your Twitter feed, and I read an article too on the on the U.S. Army and, and naps, and just some mm-hmm. some tips with that. So can you can you touch on that piece a little bit? Because naps are, are fine, right? And and they're doing some research on Love it. Love it. And also legs above. This is the article that I read. Is their naps are their legs are above their their head and chest when they're napping. Yeah, there's probably a reason for like if they're rucking or something like that. Uh, you know, to to usher some blood flow back. But um, naps, like we need to get rid of the nap shaming culture. By the way, if you're looking for social media on me, go to my Instagram. It's like way better. I got all sorts of images and videos. That's where I like to post because you can get more creative. But um, by the way, Martin Luther King, uh, John F. Kennedy, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Eisenhower, like nappers. They were all nappers. They all napped. Uh, my yeah, dad was a longtime coach. He came home every day for lunch. And would take a nap after lunch and then go back to work. Like every day, my dad was a napper. I made a post about this and somebody from like Spain or something wrote me and was like, you guys, like, <laughs> do we have a whole culture around this? So exactly. here's the science is you have it with this circadian dip in the early to mid afternoon where like you're just not going to be as alert. Your body is trained that way. And usually we eat lunch and then we feel a little bit tired. So a short 15 to 20 minute nap, you don't have to fall asleep, like improves cognitive performance, improves your mood, helps you make better decisions. Um, Actually for athletes, it improves speed, all sorts of stuff. But like if you're in an office, I used to just lay, I used to just lay down under my desk, kind of like Costanza, you know, at the Yankee stadium, but just keep it short. Um, if you go longer than 30 minutes, it needs to be 90, sleep. right? So you get at least one cycle of, of Ram. Does it have to be again? I'm asking nope. questions. Good. Yeah. Love it. Short, 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 because you will get something called sleep inertia, which is that like you ever woken up from a long nap and you're like, what year is it? I feel terrible, you know, short naps. And that's why in the field manual, they're like, you know, short, you know, brief naps. So I, so I call my favorite type of nap, because I love coffee, I don't overdrink it, but I call it a nitro nap. So if you have a little shot of espresso or a little like six to eight ounces of cold coffee, drink it right before you take the nap. When you take your nap, the caffeine's gonna um, impact a, a neurochemical called adenosine. Anyways, you will get the cognitive benefits of the 20 minute nap and you will wake up like feeling very alert. Just don't, I'm not a fan of energy drinks. So don't go slam a huge monster or something like that. Like reasonable eight ounces of coffee or or an espresso shot, but naps are like a superpower if you want to be a high performer and make great decisions. So Maybe you have practice in the afternoon, you eat your lunch, you close your door, close your eyes for 15, 20 minutes, wake up, you are going to feel more alert and more ready to tackle the rest of your day. Can we talk a little bit about caffeine and alcohol and how they affect sleep? Yeah, so caffeine, first of all, both of them are diuretics, so they dehydrate you. Your brain is a lot of water, so you don't want to dehydrate your brain, you'll have cognitive decline. Um, 
caffeine is fine. I mean, I, I have a po I have multiple posts on my Instagram feed about like the health benefits of cat of, of coffee, but you need to keep it moderate. Okay. Like four cups is the maximum, but you know, a couple cups in the morning, like real cups, not like giant venti cups, but just like your normal cup is just fine. And with no grams and, of sugar, right? Like, yeah, I mean, like, I think that's where people get crossways with it is uh, Dr. Jackie Beal's on with me. She's a dietitian out of Ohio State, but we get on that and, and people get crossways because like the, the regular coffee's fine. But when you start adding 32 grams of sugar in with it, well, you're going to get into issues with it. Hmm. 100%. So like I use like stevia or monk fruit because I do like a little bit of that and I'll use like a little almond milk or something or just black coffee. It's great. It's a cognitive boost. Um, alcohol, though, two sides of the equation. First of all, I don't encourage somebody that's not drinking alcohol to begin drinking alcohol. Five ounces of red wine. There's good literature around like things like resveratrol and stuff like that. But evening alcohol consumption will blunt your ability to have restful and fulfilling sleep. Like you can't run from it. You may feel like you fall asleep faster, but the quality of your sleep is very poor. You'll have frequent awakenings and you have a hard time getting into deep sleep. And deep sleep, I think this is the time to transition to neuroplasticity. Well, and I like I, I've had my bouts with alcohol and looking back now, mm -hmm. I know that it maybe wasn't the amount of alcohol, it was the lack of REM sleep due to the alcohol, which is why the hangover was was probably way worse because you wake up groggy. It's like getting no sleep at all. Even though you're down, it's like getting zero sleep at all because you're not getting into REM sleep. Yeah, um, the real, it, deep sleep is when your brain begins to change and that is actually non-REM. So coaches this is really key there's something called neuroplasticity so if you've ever had a child like a child can learn multiple languages really fast they can learn skills so quickly and for a long time we thought that these the brain's ability to modify itself kind of stopped like the growth curve slowed down in the early 20s what we found out though now is is that the brain can be very plastic and you can acquire skills very fast but there's a certain ways it has to work. Okay. So you have to, here's the key. The entry It's almost point like clay more than plastic, the way they're describing it. Cause you and I talked yes. yesterday about David Eagleman, who we both didn't know that Huberman and Eagleman worked together at Stanford, but the book live wired touches on this too. Like where it's almost like a mold of clay where over time it will harden, but you can still work with it, maybe more than a hard mm. plastic where, you know, it's almost like molding clay as opposed to maybe plastic. That's a great point. Um, but the entry point to changing your brain or learning a new skill is focus, okay? What happens when you focus is there's, there's a level of agitation that comes with it because certain neuromodulators or neurochemicals are released that like kind of make you like, oh, it sucks, right? You've ever worked with an athlete that like learning a skill and they're really focused and they're frustrated. That is good because here's what's happening. There is neurochemicals being released into the brain that are marking parts of your brain to be changed later on in sleep. So the first half is you have to have practice and you have to have really focused practice. And it's got, 
and I believe this, a friend of mine, Brian Decker, who ran selection development for special forces, he has a quote that says, Brian talks about training on the edge of your ability. So by training on the edge of your ability, it's going to be agitating. That is great. That's how you mark these neurons in your brain for change. When you sleep during deep sleep or non-REM sleep, these neuronal connections or synapses actually get strengthened for what you learn during the day and other ones get weakened because if everything got strengthened, your brain would literally like explode because it's encased in a hard shell. So only some things get stronger. It's not like muscles. They can keep hypertrophying. So to have neuroplasticity, you need to have really intense focus. It needs to be a struggle. And then you need to have restful and fulfilling sleep. So if you think about your athletes, if you want them to be able to learn skills faster, you have to have very good targeted training sessions where you're having edge cases where you're pushing them past their ability a little bit. And then the ability to change their brain comes when they sleep. Well, and also, okay, I know these are kind of hokey, but brush your teeth with your opposite hand. I've worn my wristwatch on opposite wrist to try to help my brain rewire quicker and, and develop new habits quicker. Those are all things that you can do that mm. that have some translation into to changing habits in, in your your arena by doing those things too, because it allows the brain to be able to develop new new pathways. Did you hurt yourself when you brushed your teeth? <laughs> <laughs> I see I'm I'm one of these weird guys. Uh, I eat left-handed and right left-handed, but do everything else right-handed. So I've gotten used to, to doing cross. Same thing in soccer. I was good with both feet. So I've gotten used to, over time, being able to use both sides. Um, so I, I think it was easier for me to probably make some changes here and there because I have gotten used to, over time, using both sides of my body. Interesting. Yeah. Ambidextrous. Well, I don't know. I can't like, write right-handed. Like, okay. But it's just... I use this on the circuit when I talk about the wristwatch. That day that I switched, I was a lifetime uh, left wristwatch wear. The day that I switched to the right one, it took forever to get it on my right wrist, but was <laughs> aware of it all day, like almost sick to my stomach. And that's kind of what you're talking about is now the brain is is lining up some of those those checkpoints but it was weird and it was weird for two months trying to do it, but I can, I can switch back and forth easily now, but it was two months mm -hmm. of trial and error, but that's why I started it. But it, it helped me as a coach because now you have a better understanding that you're trying to help players make changes. It's not the easiest thing in the world for people to make changes. There's going to be a huge no. struggle to it. So you have to have some patience with, with changes, with changes. Bringing up change. I think this is really a really interesting topic. There's a guy named BJ Fogg. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He has the behavior design lab at Stanford. I don't, I've never been to Stanford. We need to go. To we need to go. Uh, I love it. Uh, but if you want to hardwire a new habit, you know, a lot of times we get uh, fixated on these external goals and these finalities like, oh, we're going to win a championship. But research shows that if, if you're focused on the end result all the time, like it's harder to persist and pursue. Rather, you need to reward yourself intrinsically. So like if I think about it like this, you have two people running a marathon and one person is like, I got to get to the finish line. 
is it 26.2 miles, right? The other person's like, I just got to get to the first mile marker. Okay, I got to get to the next corner. Oh, when I got there, man, Eric, you're doing a great job. Keep going. That increases these dopamine levels, especially if you can celebrate your your actions. Yep, savor those moments. And, yes, and figure out, figure out a way to intrinsically reward yourself. That's why a lot of people fail at New Year's resolutions. I think it's like 60 or 80%, something. It's only, like it's 8% that. only make it the entire year. And um, Max Scherzer got some play from this summer. You saw him warming up before a game. He would hit a spot. He would pump his arm and the coaches yes. would pump their arms at the same time. Like that's rewarding that positive result. Like he threw a good pitch. He pumped his arms and the coaches pumped their arms at the same time. It was awesome. It it's It seems a little bit corny. But when you can figure out what that celebration is, I have a friend of mine that he's doing some weight loss stuff and I was kind of coaching him up to this. And I'm like, like we're trying to replace things. Like instead of drinking, uh, I don't know, he was drinking some sugary beverage. I was like, replace it with sparkling water. Right. And I was like, what would pump you up as a celebration goes, man, I'd love to high five somebody. I was like, all right, cool. Let's take a three by five note card and put it on your wall. So he sits down, instead of drinking the other thing, he drinks sparkling water and then he just high fives a three by five note card. And it's like, it gives him that rush of, man, I did a good job. Yeah, that's that dopamine hit you get. Yes, but it's, you are creating the dopamine hits. The reason Instagram and these social media platforms get people to engage is because of the likes. And that's an extrinsic dopamine hit. That's not what you want your athletes or you to get fixated on. You want to create it yourself. Man, I, 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 uh, I really worked hard today and I learned this new skill that coach was trying to teach me or I struggled through it. Hey, great job. And that comes from you. Now you're more likely to pursue and keep going as you're seeking these, you know, goal of becoming a great, great athlete. The thing that sucked me into David Eagle, man, he was on Brene Brown's podcast and he was talking about his book Live Wired, but he talked about the surgery. Um, it's hemispherectomy where they take out half your brain and they do this mm. with young kids who have seizures like every 20, 30 seconds, they're having a seizure. But if they do it below like the age of seven, you don't really know that they've had half their brain taken out because the other hemisphere overcompensates for the side that's missing, which is fascinating to me. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yep. I so I dove, I dove that's into the book gnarly. incognito and live wired because of that podcast, because I was like, okay, this, this is interesting. And yeah, he, he touched on the same thing that over your course of your lifetime, you can still make changes. Yes. They're harder because you have those neural pathways that have hardened up, but you can still make changes later on hmm. hey can you um can you talk down. about aim seven a little bit and just because yeah. I, I like your guys mission statement um can you talk about aim seven a little bit yeah so i um you know i, I talked briefly about the sports technology piece and a couple of years ago i was sitting there thinking okay when i you know we're in, in sports tech like we have all this data no insight so i wondered if the same thing existed with wearable tech that people wear and I found out the number one complaint of wearable tech wears is their data is useless. It's just information. Like, so what if I slept seven hours or eight hours or walked 10,000 steps? Like, what does that mean for me? So um, I ran a pilot with a buddy of mine. 
wanted to see if we could link wearable tech data to health outcomes. And we were actually able to predict people's energy and mood states two days in advance using an Apple Watch. So we've, I've launched a company called AIM7 and we're turning wearable tech data and health apps into actionable information that you can use to improve your energy, your sleep, improve stress and help with weight loss. And so um, if you're interested in AIM7, you could actually email us at ask at aim7.com, A-I-M-7. We, are, uh, we will be in a beta in this summer and we'll have an app that's in the app store that anybody can access in the fall, but we are having like these early users. And if you are interested in that- Beta testing is awesome. I helped with GameSense on their beta testing. I just, I love the science and when people are yeah. trying to develop new things, I, I love beta testing. It's phenomenal. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's an awesome experience and we're using something called decision intelligence to get us there. It's the merger of human expertise and artificial intelligence to make better decisions that lead to better outcomes. So in baseball, like AI is one thing, but what about the decisions the coaches are making? How do you codify that? Well, decision intelligence is like 10 years ahead. And Google and Amazon now have divisions for this. And so what I started thinking was, well, I can do this like for 15 or 20 people, but how do I do this for 10 million people? And so I learned about DI. We have like one of the world's leading experts. She actually wrote the book on decision intelligences on our team and designing this so that we're codifying our, our experts' knowledge and being able to scale this. So taking in all this stuff from the Apple Watch and all these other things. So and delivering it real fast because we found that especially coaches or people in our target demographic want to be better, but they're time poor and they need a really fast solution. And so that's what we're bringing to market. What else did you learn with your time with the NFL? Oh, geez. Uh, players, you know, like talent, you know, even in college, like talent wins, but in the NFL, like when you're dealing with pro athletes, it's not like I can just go tell somebody to do something. I had to really develop a relationship and I had to earn their trust. And if I could solve a problem for them, that was my whole mindset. I just, I was like, okay, if I can just solve a problem for this five or 10 year vet, just one problem, then maybe I can earn the right to solve another one. And uh, that's the approach I took. And they're well, seeing also, nap rooms, NFL locker room. They've, they've got nap rooms in their training areas. A lot of them do, you know, but a lot of it's just tools. You know, a lot of these places have great facilities and I'm not in colleges have great, but they do it because someone so else. So this other program, oh, it's I the shiny, that, yeah, up. it's the shiny new thing. It may not be functional, yeah. but it, it's the shiny new thing that's out there. And I think nap rooms are great. Like I love float tanks. It's great for a lot of things we could talk about, but it's all about, you have to have a, in my, my view, you have to have, it's an N of one. You got to be able to tr create programs for one person to move them. It's about true player development, like holistic high performance player development, which I have come to see having been in a lot of different organizations that that just doesn't happen we drop them in these buckets of the weight room or skill development, but none of those things are synchronized. And there's probably some places that are doing a fantastic job. I'm just saying trends I've seen that they're not synchronized in such a way that 
you're taking the information that was uh, gathered when we scouted the athlete. We know the athlete's limiting factors. We've now programmed that into a sequential program of holistic player development. We've identified the limiting factors and we're executing on it as an organization every single day. That takes a level of sophistication that I don't think everybody's comfortable with um, because it would take a lot of dropping of ego and people going and being held accountable, to be honest. Like everybody wants to just do the same thing for every position. Well, yeah, there are certain skill sets that everybody needs, but for this guy to, to get to where we want to get, he needs work at this thing. Maybe being in the weight room all the time isn't what he needs. Yeah, he needs a certain dose, or but he needs to be working on this technical skill a lot. Or maybe the technical skills are just off the charts, but he's just not robust enough. And then we got to teach him new habits, or maybe it's just a character thing, you know, and that's the issue we got to work on. And so those are the things that I see, like coming out of my experience in the NFL. And then you're at William and Mary, the the cradle of presidents of the United States. Huh. I coached at James Madison. And so they're in our league, but I didn't realize seven presidents have graduated from William and Mary, but what's the difference then with the, the pro side and then What's your implement? What you implemented maybe on the college side that might be different? Yeah, so I was William and Mary for two years. I've I've no longer there. I'm back in Houston, Texas. But um, you know, when I went to William and Mary, the idea was to actually put in a high performance department, which is the synchronization of the physical, psychological, technical, tactical elements. And we we got a good good ways into it, but you know, I, I wouldn't say it was complete. But um the biggest thing was, is like getting everybody like legitimately on the same page and like getting everybody's mental model organized. And I found that like, you know, some teams it went great. Some teams it didn't. Um, the ones, you know, I had, there's some great coaches there, but, um, you know, the things I, I mean, I learned a lot about like, cause we had very limited staff, lots of student athletes, lots of sports and how to develop a duplicatable process that other teams could plug into. We created mechanisms to share information rapidly with like Google sheets to keep everybody on the same page of the health and well-being of the athletes. And we had to have like a rallying point, like what can everybody agree on right now? that we, our athletes need to be healthy. Okay, well, how do we do that? And then we can break down other things at other times as people are more comfortable with it. But I was there just only two years. Um, um, it was a good experience. Because that's where we're heading, right? Point. That's the future of athletes is the holistic approach. You it know, needs to You got to hit everything, right? It's not just on the field. They're going to play better if you take care of all of it, the, the nutrition side, the sleep side the exercise piece. Like if you take care of all of that and they're getting on top of that, the performance is going to be there at the end. If they have some talent, yes, they have to have some talent. And we talked about that off air with Tiger Woods and you know, the, the disconnect that you see on Twitter with coaches and strength and conditioning coaches. And I brought up, uh, you made a great point because I brought up Tiger Woods working out till he puked, but I loved the comment that you made, which was <laughs> he's got, he's yeah, got I mean, talent. He's, yeah. He's an outlier. I mean, <laughs> Talent covers up a lot of things. Talent co covers up for bad strength coaches. Talent covers up for bad sport coaches. Um, it also amplifies a great coaching and great physical preparation. And I think that my goal was to make the head coach the high performance coach. 
because really at the end of the day, the most talented and skilled athletes win. And so the more quality reps that you can get at your sport, the better off you're going to be. But there needs to be some discipline around that, how you get to these high number of high quality reps without injuring or burning an athlete out. And that's where the, the best coaches I work with, whether it was basketball or volleyball or cross or football, they understood the entire system. It wasn't just like, I am a sport coach and that's it. No, 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 no. You are the second they step on the field, you are a strength coach. Why? When they practice, you are changing biology, how their energy systems work, how their tissues are adapting. So the more you understand, the more power and control you have. And that was always my goal was to put the reins in the coach's hands. So they felt like they had control and could steer the ship where they wanted it. Or they'd be like, they had the understanding to go, hey, I don't know what this piece looks like. Can you help me? Those were the best relationships. When it was like, no, I'm going to do it my way. Not many of those folks typically end up being very successful down the line if they're not going to learn. Even people like um, the best coaches of all time. Well, well look at the story that's playing out between Tom Brady and Bill Belichick right now. Mm-hmm. Those are going to be the questions that are brought up now. You know, was Bill Belichick a good clo- coach or was he great because he had maybe the greatest quarterback of all time that played for him? And the, the numbers are proving that out right now. Yeah, I mean, there's cap issues and all that stuff. I think Belichick's a, a brilliant coach. Um, he got the Cleveland Browns to the playoffs in the 90s when that was impossible. So, I mean, I think Belichick is one of the, and I have friends that have worked for him. And one of the things he's always doing is, is asking people for input and they're like to give input on to solve problems. But um, you're, you're right. I mean, like Brady goes and that will be a fun question to ask. But I think in any sport, the coaches that can consistently update their mental model and world in the view of how things are moving are the ones that are always going to be staying a step ahead. Well, how did your worldview change when you went overseas? Besides seeing how everybody else was training athletes, whatever, what else changed about your worldview? Man, like in Australia, it was kind of like the unique brotherhood of the environment. Um, in track, you just see like everything's very simple. You have a coach, you have an athlete, you have a therapist. And it was just so easy if everybody was aligned to that's where high, that's what high performance really comes from is this for track and track and field because everything's synchronized and it's a lot easier to move the ball forward. And if there's a mistake, you can kind of see where the issue happened. Um, cultural differences. Uh, you know, I worked a lot with Jamaicans and I had to learn how to change my delivery. Um, and you really have to start thinking about who it is that I'm communicating with. And we're all very unique. How'd your delivery have to change? Yeah. So there's a cultural facade everywhere you go. Right. And you have to break down the cultural facade versus who people really are. And um, it's implicit bias sometimes you, just because you're, you're used to operating a certain way or you, you know, I had to learn how to be direct, but do it in a way that didn't offend somebody. Or, um, you know, you have to learn the cultural jargon to be able to fit in. 
uh, you also have to have respect for the difficulty of other people's sports. Like Australian rules football is probably the most demanding sport in the world, physiologically. And so I'd have these little debates with them. I'm like, physiologically, there's no doubt. It's like 150 meter uh, wide by 200 meter long course. I mean, field. And it's like basketball, soccer, and football all in one. From and mixed martial st- arts. <laughs> and I was going to say an MMA. And, a, and mixed a, martial arts. Yeah. And I'm, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so now my level of understanding, that is like the most, that is a thinking man sport. The technical tactical requirements of MMA and BJJ is off the charts. But Australian rules football, the cognitive demand, as far as the tactical component, wasn't as high. Like literally I was in the room and we I was like, look, a football team's got like a freaking like, thousands of pages but then baseball it's situations like you really have to like as i started getting exposed to these different sports there's so much more going on below the surface and you can't assume certain things and i've made the biggest mistakes when i've just assumed something so it really taught me to ask more questions do you have a fail forward moment? I love asking this question. Do you have something along the way that you thought was going to sidetrack you, but you look back now and might be the best thing that happened to you? Mm. You know, getting fired from the Texans. Um, that's part of pro sport. You know, like new GM comes in, gets rid of everybody. That allowed me to go to William and Mary. And while I was at William and Mary, I went to the presidential leadership scholars program. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. It's like, so it's, it was started by the presidential foundations of uh, President Clinton, President George H.W. Bush, President George W. Bush, and the LBJ Foundation. They picked 60 scholars roughly a year, very diverse people, people that um, are in uh, politics, people that are own massive companies, people that are working on poverty and hunger and I don't know why I was selected, but I was literally trained by the former presidents and their administrations for about six months. They flew us to all these different presidential centers and I was around people that just changed me. And very diverse, right, left, whatever. And you and it taught us to be very civil, uh, to see a diverse opinions. And they really taught us how to take an idea and to grow it. And I would never have had that opportunity had I been in the NFL or like some power five program. And so my athletic director was like, yes, this is good for us. It's good for you. And that's where actually the aim seven thing. I had one of our fellow uh, scholars is a very successful entrepreneur has an amazing story. And uh, I brought him what I was doing. He's like, you have to build this. And then he invested. And so, um, and actually it's been really great. Like I'm actually in an angel round right now, raising about half a million dollars, about halfway there. But my former GM from the Texans, you know, he invested. I didn't even ask him for the money. And so it just taught me so much, like, you know, what you think is a bad situation can really turn out for the betterment of others and the betterment of yourself. And like, I'm getting, I'm under a lot of stress. I'm learning how to... It's good stress though, right? I mean, it's gratifying stress. There's difference between like stress that like wears you down, but stress that like, that's gratifying stress. It could wear me down, but I have sleep habits. I have nutrition. That's my next question on your routines. Dive dive into your routines, your your either morning routines or evening routines Mm -hmm. that you really like that you feel like help you manage your stress and be successful. Oh, fluid plans are better than strict plans. 
So, um, and research demonstrates that we did a really cool study at Kentucky on this, but basically this, like um, exercise daily. And I change my exercise based off of how I'm biological stress. So like stuff we do with AM7, like measuring heart rate variability. I get eight hours of sleep at least every night. I take a short 15 minute nap. I do get up early. I get up at 5.30 and I feed my mind, soul, and body. So I read my Bible. I go for a walk. And then I do a little bit of stretching and drink a lot of water and then get my coffee and then I get to work. And then I work really hard. I take little breaks throughout the day, focused, unfocused. Like when this is over with, I'll go drain my brain for a little bit. And then, um, you know, in the afternoon I work out and then I make sure I'm spending quality time with my kids and my wife. And then, you know, on Sundays, I take Sundays off because I will burn out. And so I will work if I have to, till 11 PM on Saturday night, you know, around the kids schedule, they go to bed, I'll finish. And then I decompress on Sundays. How do you fight that urge to want to work on Sunday? I had to fight it with everything I got. I'm saying I have um, a hard time with it. I do like I, and, and I respect people that are able to do it. It's hard for me to check out. So like, really, how do you fight that urge to, to not turn my work? computer off, uh, force myself to nap, relax, spend time with the family, and I just don't do it. It's like self-discipline. Like, and if I find myself getting tempted, I'm like, leave the office, you know? And, and I, and now I'm getting better at it. Like I will work later, you know, I'll, kids come home, spend time with them, have dinner, put them down. Then I'll work, which is fine. Then I go to bed, get my sleep, wake up. But then I'm like the light at the end of the tunnel is Sunday. Anybody that's looking to dive into to this piece of it, the neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. sleep, where are some resources? I know we've hit on some resources. What are some resources maybe that we've missed? I mean, Huberman's stuff is great. Um, man, I mean, I would just, I mean, honestly, I'm not trying to be selfish. Just follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum and then my podcast. But like, there's really, you know, here's the thing is like when you evaluate scientific literature, you need to have trusted resources. And um, I go Google Scholar stuff all the time. Like if you have a question, like get on there and go read it for yourself. If you're on a campus and you really don't, you're like, man, I like find a couple papers and then send them over to somebody. I'm sure somebody ac- academic apartment would love to help you out with that. Um, challenge the people around you in a respectful way to help you work through questions and then read it for yourself. Just read the abstract at least. And like start getting comfortable with some difficult literature. Um, and if you have people that are experts in your department, like don't be afraid to reach out and be like, hey, I don't get this. Can you help me with that? Um, I think you'll be surprised by how people will welcome you and like want to help you out. Smart people like good conversations and, and they like to be good asked question. questions. Like they've, they've studied this their whole lives. I would tell players that I'm like, you're going to be in these classes. It might be an intro class, but this professor has studied this his entire life. So that's probably going to be what the class is tailored toward. And if you don't like it or not, that doesn't matter. This person has studied this their entire life. So appreciate the fact that they've invested this much time into this topic and really and throw yourself and immerse yourself into that class because you're going to pick something up from it. I just thought of a name, Shauna Holson. Really good. Um, you know, Sherry Ma. I don't know how much she's putting out now though. She's like a resident in med school, 
but Shauna Holson does some really good literature on recovery and sleep. And I, I really like her, her work. Yeah. Sorry. I just, thought, I was just trying to think. What are some final thoughts? What'd I miss? Fill in the gaps here. What are some final thoughts and, and what'd I miss? Yeah. I would just say this, like if we want to sum it all up, we, in coaching, we want to teach our athletes new skills. We want them to be more robust under pressure. The gateway to all of that is intense focus the way that we wire that in asleep. If you don't have the habits on either side, if you don't have really good intense focus to know how to get your athletes into that position, you're going to have problems. If your athletes aren't getting restful and fulfilling sleep consistently, you're going to be putting in a lot of hard work and wondering why it's not cementing itself. And so like the brain is the gateway for all of this. And we have to have this dichotomous relationship of real intense focus with periods of times of rest and relaxation and sleep and don't feel soft for it. Like don't feel bad about taking a 15 minute nap. Like that is best for you and for your players. Awesome. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Eric. This won't be the, the last time that we talk. So thanks for having me on.
Big shout out to Dr. Korn for jumping on with me. We touched the tip of the iceberg on everything available to discuss in this field. I hope this is another tool in the kit that you can add to help you personally and with the organizations that you work with. As I've gotten older, I've become more protective of my sleep routines and habits. I hope this opens up some doors for you to have a healthy, happy, and productive 2021. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West and the ABC office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter at CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram at RyanBrownlee17, or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you. Oh